performance anxiety on the Pantheon Podcast Network, and I'm your host, Mark. And today's guest makes me want to be more international. I'm joined by Paul Chastain. You may know him from his band, The Small Square, or you may remember him from Velvet Crush. Either way, he drops in while traveling to Wisconsin to talk about his early fascination with harmony, when and why he started singing, and meeting Rick Mank to form Velvet Crush. He reveals why the band moved from the Midwest to Rhode Island, how they decided on the name Velvet Crush, and their long-term relationship with Matthew Sweet. Paul tells me why Japan is so important to him, and the band, and what ultimately made him decide to move there. Paul's latest band, The Small Square, have recently released their second album, Ours and Others. He talks about playing tag team piano in the studio, recording music that he wrote for someone else, and how it doesn't really feel like it's his, and his connection and ghostly tribute to Tommy Keene. Check out smallsquaremusic.com or Farm to Label Records for album info. Follow them at The Small Square on Facebook or smallish.square on Instagram. Follow us at Performance ANX on X and Instagram. And you can buy our merch at performanceanx.threadless.com or feed our coffee habit at ko-fi.com slash performanceanxiety. Now prepare to be crushed by Paul Chastain on Performance Anxiety on the Pantheon Podcast Network. Hey, this is Paul Chastain from The Small Square, and I'm on Performance Anxiety Podcast, and we're talking about our new album, Ours and Others. That work? Okay. That was easy. Oh, so how you been? I've been all right. I'm on a little road trip at the moment. Oh, yeah. Where, where are you right now? Right now, I am in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Oh, wow. Okay. I'm at my friend Jeff Murphy's house. He is in this band called Shoes. I don't know if you know them. They're a band from the... They made records on Elektra Records in the in the 70s. Okay, yeah. And um, they're friends of ours. They're actually on the on our new record, is uh, on one of the songs. And uh, we're... I'm just... I haven't seen them for a while, so I'm stopping by. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to close this door. Yeah, sure. Sorry about that. Oh, no problem at all. So the way I like to start things off is to really find out how you got into music in the first place. Was there, you know, a, a particular song or a band or were your parents playing a lot in, that really got you into music? Um, well, let's see. Um, I was, uh, I guess, you know, I, my earliest things I remember being interested in doing my, my older brother, um, used to have records and stuff that uh, I would listen to and he, and he played a trumpet. And so I sort of started to learn to play trumpet and oh, nice. uh, got into like, so two different things at the same time, like pop music, right? Like, Oh, we had, you know, the monkeys single or something or you know, something like that, that yeah. he would, he's a bit older than me. So I had that stuff. And then, um, I started playing and I learned, I could sort of, I learned to kind of play a trumpet just by ear, just by kind of being able to do it. And then I became, you know, went into bands, but that was sort of like, I realized, Oh, I really like to, to do these kinds of things. And, um, you know, and I'd always think around on people's pianos. If the, some of my friend would have a piano at their house or something, I'd always enjoy doing that kind of thing. So that's the kind of stuff that really got me into Then after I had my head sort of in that direction where you were thinking like, yeah, I like, I really like how music, you know, I like something about music and all that. Then I started becoming sort of more fascinated with, um, how people make songs. Like, how do they do, how can you do that? Like, how you like some (laughs) conjuring, you know, like magical skill or something. Right. So I was very interested in doing that. And I was also really interested in like sort of the, the, 
concept of harmonies, just the way it sounded. Like if you put these two notes together or three notes or whatever, they make these this great other sound that's bigger than the other than the original sound, and uh, it, you know, it just was so like. I don't know. It was like all sort of magical at that point. Like, how do you do this? And how do you, how do you do pleasing ones that are, you know? And so I liked, you know, I remember liking like, um, Simon and Garfunkel, you know, cause the, the vocal harmonies oh, and yeah. the song, the song craft. And that was kind of folky at that point, early, earlier Simon and Garfunkel stuff was very folky, but, uh, it's still a little bit complicated, but the, I really was fascinated by the two voices and uh, how they work together and how that, I don't know, uh, built the sort of emotional, level of the song it was just like a guitar and the two voices on some of the recordings and i'm like wow that's so you know and then other things like that like everly brothers and things like that like wow they can really you know it just was for a for a uninitiated you know it was sort of like it's just mind expanding you think like how this is so powerful that you can just like there's two people or one person and a a guitar or something and you can make this thing happen exactly you know and how do you do that so that you know that was me i jumped I'm still off. fascinated by that. Oh, yeah, me too. Exactly. <laughs> That's the thing. It never stops, right? It never goes away. And I don't know how to do any of it. So, it's, so oh, you're not a player in any way? Uh, I am a self-taught, horrible guitarist. That's about what? it. I'm a photographer. That's my creative outlet. Oh, so. cool. That's cool. So That's a great it's fun. I go to, I shoot a lot of live music in the, I, I live out, a little outside of DC. So I, I shoot a lot of, a lot of shows in the DC area. Uh-huh. So nice. That's my thing. Um, and that and podcasting apparently. So yep. when did you start playing with other people and, and was that <clears throat> with the bass or was it with trumpet? Well, you know, with the trumpet was more like a thing for school. So I was in that, you know, but, but through that you meet other people, you know, you make sort of a new circle of friends. So I, I did that all through high school and even into a little bit of college that I did was I played trumpet that whole time. But, uh, in, I guess probably high school, I started to play bass and I got a really crappy guitar also electric guitar from the pawn shop that maybe it was actually before the bass. I think I got that guitar, you know, at the pawn shop and it was like, it's a no name, like electric guitar. Yeah. And, uh, the strings were so high off of the neck stuff. And I didn't know, you know, that that wasn't how they were. (laughs) I didn't play a yet so I'm like, wow, so hard and i had like some you know some books i think i had like a beatles you know like a, a book that has like the piano music and the, the guitar chords so i learned to read the guitar symbols you know and, and that's how i learned to do figure out the oh, okay. you know the chord patterns like a d is this and yeah. and then the the books would have the little chart in there say it would say d c g whatever right, right. So to play but it, you know it was so hard like like how can they go fast enough to do this so yeah. hard because you know, and then my, it would just be painful because the guitar is so terrible. So then, you know, eventually I got a, another guitar or I played somebody else. And I said, Oh, yeah. <laughs> I see. Well, that, you know, that doesn't make me better, but you know, it's, I can understand how I can get there now. Maybe I started, I got a cheap bass. It was actually a, a copy of a, like a Paul McCartney, you know, Hofner Beetle bass thing oh, cool. it was a copy from the department store. <laughs> and I started playing it because I wanted to play in the high school, um, like pit band for the musicals that they would do. So I did that. I started doing for that. And then at that same, I think that same year, the, the, they decided to have like a jazz combo was the first time they had done it in my high school. Oh, cool. And so I, I said, I'll play bass for it. And I really didn't know how to, do, you know, I liked jazz music. <laughs> yeah. and I wasn't well versed in it, but I liked it. And I knew a little bit of it. 
from the trumpet and stuff. And I, then I decided, oh, but I couldn't really read bass clef music. And um, I didn't really know. It was like, well, they just do boom, 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 you know, the walking bass line. And I right. didn't, but that really knows. Like, just give me a starting point. You know? <laughs> so I would sort of look at the guitar chords and then sort of try to figure out the pattern. But I wasn't, you know, I wasn't really getting it done. But that was my first sort of indoctrination into bass playing. And then later in high school, I think it's when I started my having my own band with a, another friend of mine. We decided we wanted to write songs, and so he and I started to write songs, and then that turned into having having a little uh, kind of a a band. Okay. And then after high school, uh, that turned into like a sort of a different band, but I had like a little new wave band called Nines, and we used to play in Champaign, Illinois, where I where I'm from. That was my first real band. We play show, we play jobs, you know, and do shows. Right. Open. Okay all that kind of stuff so that was that was the transition and then by that point i was full-on basing you know but i also discovered that i had to be the singer in that particular combo so that's when i started singing okay like, so oh, well, I, I wasn't thinking of exclusively being the singer but um uh, you know so did you have any uh, experience singing prior to that i mean was that something you were doing it on your own anyway or was that brand no, new just um I think just writing songs and I, the, the high school band I was in, we had like a guy who wanted to be the singer, like just a lead singer, you know? Yeah. So he did that and I would sing, you know, backup vocals and stuff. But, uh, I don't remember doing any singing before that. Although I like to sing, you know, I learned to do like Beatles songs and stuff like that. I would try to sing yeah. with, but, uh, yeah, not, not out in front of people. I think until <laughs> then, until that band, like, Oh, well, you know, I can kind of sing. So we'll, I'll, we'll, we'll try this. We'll yeah. try this. That's how bands work. You know, like you play bass. No, I don't play bass. You know, yeah. Kind of, yeah. <laughs> you're a singer. Okay, well, Somebody okay. does it by default. Cause you need <laughs> it. Like we can't have a band if you're not going to sing. Right. Right. <laughs> cool. so that was kind of a long answer to your question, but no, that's, that's fine. That's what I like actually. <laughs> we'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. Pantheon Podcast listeners, Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house, and my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once, new quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Before you skip over this ad, give me one minute. Like most podcasts, I pick sponsors carefully and I use the products that advertise here. 
Pure Spectrum CBD is a product that has been really beneficial for me. They have a wide variety of great products that can be used on a daily or as needed basis. I've been using the tincture every day and it's been wonderful for easing anxiety. And I absolutely love the isolate. I use it instead of acetaminophen or ibuprofen and it's worked so well for the relief of aches and pains. They also have soaks, lotions, salves, gummies, and more, plus an entire line for fitness recovery. They even have products for your pets. See everything they offer at PureSpectrumCBD.com. And if you have questions, they're there to help. They helped me when I had no idea where to start. After you fill your cart, use code PERFORMANCEANX for 15% off your purchase. Pure Spectrum CBD, Pure Spectrum CBD, Pure Spectrum CBD. Okay, so around the time you're in nines, it looks like you were in a lot of bands around that time. Um, so I was looking at, so there's, there's nines, there's Bag of Shells. Okay, so nine like the, the launching point. And then that, so that was, that predates all those stuff. So after okay. nines, so nines was like when my friends were all in the university there. Okay. And I, I didn't go to, to that school. So, so nines ended when, <laughs> when the couple of the guys graduated, well, whenever <laughs> Right. And then had they went, they went to get jobs, you know, stuff like that. So, yeah. so that was the end of that. So at that point I took some of the later recordings that we, in the meantime, let me backtrack just a minute. We had made some recordings up in Chicago area in Schaumburg. We met this guy named Michael Freeman who had worked with this guy that I didn't know yet, but would soon know named Rick Mank. And he had had a band called the reverbs and Michael was involved in that and recorded. And I heard those recordings and uh, somebody suggested you might like to work with this guy. He sounds like you're this this kind of thing, and maybe you want to get a hold of this guy. And if you're going to do recording somewhere, maybe you'd want to talk to this Michael Freeman guy. So I said, okay. "Oh well, actually sounds like a good idea." So I did that, and uh, we hit it off pretty well. And then he said, "Well, you have to meet my friend Rick, who is uh, who I'm working with in the, the Reverbs uh, project that we're doing, and he's going to be in Champaign, actually going to a show, so you can meet him." Nice. And, did meet him and Rick uh, is the guy that I started Velvet Crush with a, a little later on down the road. But that's where those other bands came in. That was all me and Rick, uh, like Bag of Shells was sort of like my solo project, but it was me and Rick, you know, basically. It was like the same thing, repackaged. But <laughs> it, I wrote the songs for that and I sang them, and Rick was the drummer, but he was involved in sort of creating the whole thing, the songs and stuff. another one I think um, and that was Rick's kind of more his thing he would sing and choose the songs or we would we would write them together or, you know or whatever but they're kind of more his ideas and those were all little sub things we were doing they weren't actually bands that would play they were like little recording projects more oh, we did okay. play but they weren't like it, I didn't feel like they were a real band per okay. se 
but that's what all those little things were just me us doing different versions of our thing. You know? That's <laughs> awesome. I love it. I mean, I was looking at them, you know, hey, there's Halo, the big baby choo choo train. Halo was a solo record. So that's what, that's what came out of the nines thing. So, so oh, half okay. those songs were done with the, with the band from nines. It's not a Some of those songs were done after that fact, and I did it with my friend John Richardson, who was in uh, Small Square with me. And that was a long time ago when we did that. Wow, wow, but okay. So, so that became Halo, which was my solo EP. It was put out by this guy, Paul Rock, who was from Chicago. Now he's in L.A. He promotes shows and does stuff in L.A. But um, So that, was, that all predated that, and then that merged into the when I met Rick, and we started doing Springfields and Bag of Shells and... Um, I don't know what else we were doing. He would kind of come up with all that stuff like, oh, we should do, well, you know, we'll have a thing. We'll release this under this name. I'm like, okay. You know? yeah. I, I would say that sounds cool. But he, <laughs> he sort of was the visionary and that stuff like had all the, and I, which is interesting and kind of confusing and, and funny. And he even did a, I think he even did a recording that I wasn't involved with that was called Velvet Crush, maybe if I remember correctly, some kind of single he did with some other people predated the band. Oh, wow. Okay. And then, through that stuff, Rick and I eventually decided to um, move out of the Midwest and try and do our band. And we, we sort of chose the East Coast and uh, decided to go out there without really having much of a plan. <laughs> <laughs> but I was just talking to this with my friend Jeff today, and it just seems like sort of crazy. Like, like would I do that now? No, I wouldn't do that now. All right, exactly. But, you know, because I, I had a guitar and a bag of clothes and, you know, like $100 or something. And I was freaking went to, <laughs> you know, we we went to uh, to Rhode Island because we knew this guy, Jeffrey Underhill, who was in a band. He's from Wisconsin originally, which is where I am now. And he was in a band called the White Sisters. And Rick knew them, knew him a little bit. So we called up Jeffrey and said, Hey, what's, what's the scene out there? What's going on out there? Like what, yeah. you know, we were thinking about moving out and he's like, well, you know, we, you could stay here. I have this house that we rent and it's like, got a lot of, a lot of space and stuff and you could crash here until you got, you know, figured out. Oh, and we'll, wow. I'll, I'll be fine, you know, somewhere to a house or whatever. Oh know, my God. Help, help you sort out your stuff. He's a super nice guy, you know? And he became the guitar player for Velvet Crush eventually when we got that together after we sort of landed, you know, got our feet back under us and we were like, okay, what are we going to do? We want to have our band. Yeah. And so we asked Jeffrey if he wanted to, to try to do it with us. And he said, okay, sure. And so that became the beginning of Velvet Crush band uh, at that point, okay. which, is, which was about like 1989. Okay. So Velvet Crush wasn't an official band in Illinois, it, was, it started yeah, officially exactly. in Rhode Island. Yeah, even though all three of us are from the Midwest, right? Okay, we weren't at, we weren't from there at all. So, but we ended up there. And Providence, you know, was a pretty good place. It was it was a cheaper, much cheaper than Boston, but it was only about an hour away from Boston. It was striking just to New York, and yeah. we thought that would be advantageous. And then there were we we're from the Midwest, you know, and things are so far apart. It's like, where are we going to play? Well, Chicago, and then what? Well. Iowa City and it's like really far and you know wow. like 
Lincoln, well, that's super far. You know, like you have the, the, the towns or the cities are kind of a lot farther apart. St. Louis, we can go there. That's not too far. It's three hours. But <laughs> we're like, we go to the East Coast, you know, we could cover so much territory. That's what we imagined in our mind, you know, like yeah. we can go to New York and Philly and D.C. and, um, you know, New Haven and Providence and Boston and, and uh, you can. And we did, you know, eventually that's exactly what we did. So it took a little while, but we started working with Jeffrey and uh, we didn't even have music. I had some solo songs, demos, you know, that I that I'd written and we kind of used that as the seed. But then what really became Velvet Crush was when we, you know, we got a rehearsal space and um, we started making making songs together from somebody's idea. One of our, one of the three of us had a melodic idea or a chordal idea or something like that. And, or just a concept or whatever. And we, so that the first Velvet Crush record was us being very collaborative on, on almost every, some of the songs, there's a couple songs that are my other, my older songs that were our seed songs. I think we left a couple of those on there just because we needed the material, but we took these songs and we do them in batches and we go to our friend, Matthew Sweet's house. He lived in Princeton, New Jersey at the time. Yeah. And he had a, he had a little demo studio in his house where he worked and so he, he said he'd record those things for us. And so we, two or three batches of songs or trips down there, you know, we said, can you record these songs? And he did. And that became the first record right there. And we, wow. we got somebody to put it out in the States and we sent it to, Rick sent it over to uh, England to creation and they actually licensed it. I think it put it out. Um, which was a, a miracle because we were like big fans of, of that label, you know, Alan McGee's creation. Oh, yeah. We were big fans of that, so they agreed to put it out. had licensing deals and so we also got to release that same record in japan which became another key thing for us okay we got japan tie from way back you know way back in the day and that was one of the another yet another example of it so uh, we got but that which which means in japan we were on like um that record was on columbia or some kind of major label i think it was columbia oh wow so we got to go tour in Japan for the first record and we were, you know, we were like stunned, you know, that we wow. would get to do that. And it was, you know, amazing to be able to experience that sort of the way that they are. Nothing like the U.S., you know, reception that you get. You oh, know, really? When you're, you know, when you're a startup band like that, it was really you know, eye-opening and, and very cool and very sort of a confidence bolstering, you know, because people were into it and they looked like they were into it and they were <laughs> you know, moved by it or whatever. And they would like come, you know, and there'd be people outside of the venue after we were done playing and we, you know, to, to talk to us as we go to the van or like, what? It was really weird. You know, oh, like, cool. It's not so foreign to me now, but like it doesn't happen all the time. And it never happened when we were just in our, you know, going up and down the East coast playing yeah. our shows as we did. Um, so that was a cool thing about the first record. So I've got a couple questions. Okay. Um, 
how did you guys settle with all the other bands that you were in before Velvet Crush, all the, the names? How did you guys settle on Velvet Crush as a name the, for the band? The name, uh, you know, I don't know where it came from. Rick, Rick came up with it and he claims <laughs> that he, he had a dream and somebody, I don't remember who it was, but it was, I think somebody he knew. I don't remember now. It's a little hazy, but he, somebody said, you, you know, you should be Velvet Crush or something like that, like a literal thing. But it was like a dream of somebody kind of saying something. Wow. That's what I, that's what I remember. Anyway, he came up with it and that's, he, that's how he said he got it. I don't know where it wasn't like a thing we ever said. I never heard him. I don't remember ever hearing him say it before that time. So it really sort of came out of the blue. And when we heard, when I heard, I said, I don't know. It's kind of cool. It's like hard and soft. Like that. Yeah. I like, there's something about it. I like, I like the two words. And uh, so that just, I don't know. Okay. It was, it was the easiest uh, naming of a band that I've ever <laughs> been in because usually that's a real, it's hard, you know, to come up with a band name. If, in, you know, unless yeah. you don't care. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I think most people don't do that. They really try to come up with a name, you know. Yeah, and and it gets harder and harder with the uh yeah, the internet. Now. All, it always seems like they've all been done, you know. <laughs> yeah, and you know, back back in, you know, before the internet, you could have a name that somebody else has, somebody else had, but you'd oh, never yeah. know. Very easily, very easily. Yeah, and it, but and it, nobody cared really at that point either. Nobody was offended by having two bands of the same name on different coasts. So. Yeah, and it would just happen. And then, you know, there'd be the one where you'd have this something UK or the, something like that. You know? Yep, or put, like, you know, the definitive article on yours is like, yes, the right. or something. Right. And, and so, so you mentioned working with Matthew Sweet. How did you guys meet Matthew Sweet in the first place? How did that relationship start? Um, well, that was through Rick. Rick is and was even then a big... I don't know what you call it, like, you know, a crazy big fan and like a, a musicologist almost kind of. Thing. So he had somehow stumbled across uh, one of Matthew's early recordings. Matthew had this combo. It was just him and another guy, and they were called The Buzz of Delight out of Lincoln, Nebraska. Since Matthew's from and um Rick got this and I remember this record but I probably got I don't know maybe I had it before before I talked to Rick I'm not sure but anyway they made an EP a vinyl EP and um it came out on I don't remember what label now but I, I had it and Rick got it and was like oh my god this is like this is the coolest thing you know and uh so he wrote to Matt you know this is before internet so he wrote Matthew a letter and said, I think your records look so cool. And, you know, said, I, I'd like to like to meet you. I'm a musician and all this, whatever. Oh, cool. And so Matthew wrote him back a letter, and I don't know what it said, but I remember he said it had, like, glitter in it. So when he opened it, it, like, exploded glitter all over the place. <laughs> <laughs> but but that was around the time that I met Rick. He met Matthew and I around the same time, the same time frame. Okay. So he's known both of us about the same amount of time. And we, we played with Matthew uh, pre-girlfriend a little bit. He did two records before Girlfriend. Yeah. Second one, we did a tour for, which was his first tour he ever did. And Rick and I played with him on that tour. 
Oh, and cool. Then, and then he had, I think he had some other people helping him later on after that. And then we joined him again for some of the girlfriend stuff. And then we left during, because that blew up at that point. Yeah. And Rick left because that was right around, it was probably like 94, 95. And then we had to go do Velvet Crush stuff because we had in the meantime gotten signed by Creation and we were making our own record and stuff. So we had to, we had to sort of do both things. So we left that after it, it, it right as it started to blow up. You know, like wow. we would go to the clubs and there'd be 10 people. And then, you know, a few, a couple weeks later, we'd go back to that club and it was a sold out club, you know, like that kind of thing was wow. happening. MTV play and it started to get college radio play. And it really was like that. It really was happening. And we were out on the road the whole time that was happening doing van tours, but we had to, we had to leave it at a certain point. So then we came back and, and rejoined him later on. And after we missed the next record, I think, but we came back maybe a record after that. So we, we missed a little time because we were doing crush touring and all that right. kind of stuff. Well, I was listening to all the albums and uh, I was, I can hear the, the first album is really cool. I really like it. And it's got this, this, completely different sound from the other albums yeah it sounds a much more it's reverby and and you know your vocals are a little more uh sound like they're, they're doubled a little the bit more album, so that's the one we did it matthew did it at his so that's how his that was his demo studio and that's how his demos would sound we thought you know his demos sound because we would he would send us right his demos and uh, like these demos sound really cool i think you know they sound yeah. pretty cool and so but all i remember about it is it seemed like he just had like one microphone on a drum kit. Maybe there, maybe there was another one. I, I remember, I only remember seeing one. I wasn't that much paying attention. I wasn't engineering or anything, right. but, but it was whatever he did for his thing that we had, we said, can you just do how the way you do these demos that you do? And so, and we had that. And then, um, I think there was a live guitar amp and there was also some kind of a, which was new at the time. He had some kind of an amp emulator, box like a plug-in thing you plugged into it, it sounded like an amp oh wow like a big a rack mount kind of thing i don't remember yeah. what it was but it, it sounded pretty cool so some of the guitar sound is that and i think there was a real a regular amp too but we used that to track so we could do the drums in the same room but i always thought it, it reminded me kind of like an old like a kinks record or something in a good way you know where it just sounds like it when it's new even it sounds kind of worn a little yeah. bit <laughs> I but uh, it. it's got a good energy to it i think and i like that record i like it i think because of the reason i um talked about before but it was very collaborative the songs and then i liked doing it with matthew helping us out he, he recorded and then he, he plays on it a little bit too he does a little bit of the guitar stuff okay. Maybe, maybe he sings something. I don't remember if he sings on there or not, but um, probably. But it was all just like in his the living room of this little house. Wow. So it was no big deal. And it, I'm not even sure we planned to make it a record. I guess we did. But it was done, like I said, in like maybe two or three batches of songs. And then we had enough. <laughs> we said, okay, <laughs> this is the record, you know. Like, so. <laughs> so then we started trying to get somebody to put it out. But so, yeah, yeah. I, I have fond memories of that record. That was really the genesis of the whole of what we, we started. And then each record we did after that, they all were sort of different in the way that they were written a little bit and what was going on, you know, how much we had been playing and different stuff like that affected, yeah. I think, a lot of that. But the next thing that happened, so Teenage Symphonies was the, like the, the major label record. So we had, a, which means we had a bunch of money to use. And so we enlisted Mitch Easter, who was the, our number one choice for a guy to work with as a producer and, and yeah, uh, good choice. A musician also. And so we went 
down to the drive-in, which is where he was at the time. Okay. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon Podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. The drive-in studio was Mitch's original studio. It was actually the garage of his parents' house, <laughs> where he didn't live. Wow. But converted their garage area into a studio and that's for all those bands down there recorded when you see it says drive-in mitch's drive-in it was the, his parents <laughs> you'd walk through the door of the you know the door between the garage and the house and you know his dad's sitting in there or something or his mom and you know, it, was, it was very like like oh did you did you want some the, you know something to do or like oh I <laughs> so it's pretty Interesting. And we did part of that at the studio called Reflection. We did our basic tracks there. That's over in Charlotte. And we did that there because I think maybe they did some REM stuff there. It was just a big room. We thought it might be cool to do the drums there. But as it, as it turned out, it probably didn't matter that we did them there because as we learned, we retracked some of the stuff that we'd done there at Mitch's because even in a little room setup, he's just so, you know, he's good at doing it. And we were like, yeah. you know, we, we redid the drums, I think, on one song. And I was like, oh, shit, man. <laughs> we really didn't need to, <laughs> we really didn't need to rent that place out. And, you know, we, this sounds just totally cool. And, you know, but you learn that we were green. We didn't know. Oh, yeah. But we did record, we did record it on two-inch tape, analog. It's an analog recording on two-inch tape. Wow. So that was, that was cool to do. It was, a, it was very, um, a cool experience in a lot of ways, you know, cause we, like I said, we were a little green at that point and Mitch was very seasoned and he's very, uh, good at what he does. And he's a very intelligent guy. And, uh, it really was easy to work with them. And he really, he's, you know, is there to do something at the right moment. You know, he, he wouldn't like go, here's what we're going to do guys. We're going to tell you what we're going to do. We're going to just like do this. You know, yeah. it's not like that. He's like finds, he kind of finds the thing of the band or the oh. session. And that's what the session becomes. It's not like he has this sort of master plan, not heavy handed, I guess is what I'm saying. Right. You know, it's kind of more organic at the way it just develops in the, I mean, you talk about how you want it to be kind of, but, but, you know, he kind of just can sense out what's happening and the sounds and everything kind of go according to that, which makes it seem like it's just so natural, you know, it's amazing. <laughs> and it worked out amazingly well on Teenage Symphonies because it sounds like such a huge leap forward from the first album. The sound is completely different. Well, the sound is more, you know, that was a, recorded in an actual recording studio. Yeah. <laughs> That's true. Engineers, you know, we had engineers, Mitch and other, a couple other guys working at different times on it. And, uh, you know, a budget and we had more, 
we had, you know, a plan, more foresight and plan about doing it. You know, we, we had ambitions to do certain things and do it kind of certain ways. And yeah. we wanted to step it up a little. The sound wise just happened because the one way we recorded with one microphone on the drums, like, <laughs> at, at, you know, to, as an example, to going to, you know, an actual, you know, multi mic set up on the drums and the quality, the sonic quality just goes up, you know, it'd be hard for it not to, you know? Yeah. Right. But you also used, uh, you know, you expanded the musical palette with, it sounds like a pedal steel and some other. Yeah. We were into, at the time we were into, we started uh, exploring. We really were into like Graham Parsons and the birds. The birds was like a huge touchstone band for us because of, uh, I, I, for me, because they, had I, I thought it was cool the way they had so many versions of their band. Yeah, I don't know if that's what they meant to do or not, but I <laughs> thought it was so cool. You know, like they're like a folk rock band, and then they're like a band, you know, a rock band, and then they're like a sort of psychedelic band, and then they're like some other like country hybrid yeah. thing. But, you know, and like all that was just like, wow, that's so badass. You know, like they do all these incarnations, and McGuinn's mainly the singer of the thing. It was just so cool. So we wanted to have some some of that on there. And so Rick wrote, the last song on the record is a kind of country song that Rick wrote. But we wanted to incorporate the other um, elements into the other songs that aren't necessarily country songs, like mm -hmm. Pedal Steel. And it just so happened that through our acquaintance with Matthew and working with him, we knew this guy, Greg Lease, who was just and is just the best Pedal Steel player sort of ever. You oh, know, wow. West Coast session guy. He, right now he's plays with, uh, he's playing with Jackson Brown right now, I think live stuff, but he's played with sort of everyone big and small. He's played with Dylan. He's played with, you know, but also small bands, you know, he just plays on, he's a session guy. Right. Yeah. So anyway, we became friends with them and we said, we'd love to get you come to play, play on this record. You have to come to North Carolina. He said, sure. Yeah, no problem. So he came and it was just, you know, so awesome. <laughs> he just, I told this story to a couple people recently, but he's just said setting up his instrument, you know, and we had the track already sort of done up to a certain point. He played on a couple things, but on, um, the song time wraps around you, we're just kind of rolling it. And he's like, just, can set up and tune it up and play. He's playing, kind of playing through it. All makes is just rolling the tape. He's like, and he starts doing. It. I'm like, oh my god, you know, <laughs> you know, like tears coming to my eyes and just so like it, it just made it like a real uh, thing somehow. Even even more so, it drove the point home. And I was like, god damn, this is like he like you know. Greg is a, is a really talented player, but he also is so like, um, 
I don't know, like intuitive and he can sense, this is why he works with so many people. He can work with them. Uh, all the different kinds of artists he's worked with, you know, and he's worked with Beck and he's worked with Dylan and all these different people, Joni Mitchell. And, and then like tons of like small indie bands and stuff too. And he can just kind of figure out how he can fit into their thing, you know, without taking it over or without receding too much and stuff. And he's just so, uh, has some kind of magical power for doing that. And on top of, you know, his gift for playing stringed instruments in general. So, so that was quite cool. We also had a friend of ours from Boston, this guy, Michael Deneen, who ran a studio called Q Division, who came and he was sort of the master of a Chamberlain, which is like a, you know, a Chamberlain is like a, a like a Mellotron. Right. Uh, yeah. Same idea. They're like taped strings or sounds. So the early samplers basically, but what it was, was a, a keyboard, but it played a loop, a, a magnetic tape loop of a note on a certain instrument that was recorded, like a flute or a string. Okay. So he, he was like a master of playing these things, this guy, Michael. And so we had him come too and play on some of the things, which was amazing and totally cool. And we had a couple other local people that were around Mitch's area play some stuff and sing a couple of little things. And then Mitch played the lead guitar for the most part. Jeffrey did some, okay. but Mitch did the sort of super rock and stuff. And he's just an amazing player that can sort of do anything. You can sort of just, any, and also great about Mitch, you can sort of give him any reference point, you know, musical reference, and he kind of knows what that is somehow and knows all these things and then can kind of, you know what I mean? Like you don't want him to copy a thing, but you're like, right. we were th- but in our mind was this the sound wise like this kind of a record it was like this you know a little bit like this or something okay it'd be any sort of music you know and he'd go okay and the thing he would do would be sort of like that but not you know not copying not a it, copy, but it, right but give you the give us the sort of vibe of that through but with you know original notes and stuff that he could i don't know how he could, could sort of do all that but um so we used him quite heavily in that regard because he was so good at it and willing to do it but he never like said oh i should do a thing on here we'd always had to ask him to do it you know he totally okay. wouldn't wouldn't just force it on anybody but he could do so much stuff you know <laughs> hard not to try to use him so that brought a question to my mind i love the sound of velvet crush and bands like velvet crush you've got this great pop structure but the guitar is really raw i think you guys and, and Matthew Sweet is, is similar vein. Right. You know, you're not afraid of yeah, we're, we're harmonics. From the same mold, sort of. I think, yeah, yeah. You're not you're not afraid of like harmonics, accidental sounds. Well, you know, Velvet Crush was a pretty, especially in the beginning days, pretty rock, almost punkish. You know, we were very pop because that's our background. But like, we our live shows were not quite so pretty and a lot more sort of. <laughs> than that and you know like I, I have chunks taken out of my base where I like threw it or did some stuff like that you know I was at Maxwell's in New Jersey one time you know which I probably wouldn't do nowadays but like it was kind of got to those levels of that kind of stuff and it, it kind of mellowed a little or changed a little more over time mellowed a little bit I think in, as the material warranted maybe but yeah and Matthew too like he you know he's always been rocking although we have you know we like pretty songs and stuff like that too and we like yeah. pretty mellow harmony so that's really what we do you know and matthew and I, that's one reason matthew and i and us matthew and us get, can work together so well because we we kind of think the same way about that stuff like we didn't like you know I, I don't think i copied him in any way or anything like that but we really do you know like we like sort of the same things that's one reason it really clicked because we were just like the same cut out of the same mold musically you know influenced okay. by 
many, many of the same things. And there's discrepancies at places, but generally, you know, it's really sort of shockingly the same. You know? so, all right. <clears throat> for example, like the song Standing Still. examples of, of what I was talking about. It's a great pop song, but it's got this raw guitar with, with you know, like squeals and harmonics and just... Oh, so that's so that stuff. That's when our... We, we had another guy in our band during that point. His name was Pete Phillips. And Pete played... Uh, let's see. We might have done some of that record without him. I don't remember. We did it at Mitch's, but Pete was with us and we had worked him into doing live stuff with us. And we wrote some of the songs with him. And so, standing still, that's Pete. Uh, so he, he plays on some of those, and I think you can kind of tell they're more like that, more sort of Jimmy Pagey uh, guitar yeah. stuff. That was Pete's kind of thing, and he was with us from that point forward until we sort of stopped before Free Expression, you know. Okay. But that was like a you know we we added him as a, we always had a fourth member when we did touring. We always had we had Tommy Keen. Yeah. We had, yeah. We had Mitch Easter play too, and this other guy, David Gibbs from Jewel Ants, was oh, we used him a lot. Oh, cool! So those guys were sort of our floating cast of players, and we'd always have somebody with us. And then we decided we knew Pete. We you know we sort of knew him for a long time. We thought he's not in a band right now, and we should we should bring him on and uh, have him in the band. You know, yeah. instead of hired fourth member, we just get the guy in the band. So we got him in. We started doing songs, and then we started doing live things. And then we recorded that after we played them a little live, actually. And we did some of that stuff kind of live in the studio more, like like four of us playing at the same time. Oh, wow. I think. Just in Mitch's, uh, that was in his other studio, the Fidelitorium, which was his, ha- his house, basically. <laughs> so we were in two different, we were in a bedroom or two different bedrooms. And oh, we did some of those. The ones with Pete, we did kind of live. So that record's kind of a half and half where we did it separate stuff but then we did a portion of it live like standing still was one of the live live tracks that we did oh Not wow just like instruments all playing at the same time and yeah. maybe overdubbed the leads and the lead vocals but that was our last record with mitch that we did that record didn't get released by creation though they dropped us and so we eventually put it out ourselves and it came out on sony japan but not on creation <laughs> So you always, always seem to have this uh, this connection with Japan. Mm. It's been it's been good to you. It has been good. Yeah, we maintain sort of a, a major label sort of relationship over there, and and uh, publishing. The woman that works for the publisher was sort of in our corner the whole time, and still is really. And she sort of helped us get some of that stuff, keep it going or get it going. And uh, we've had some good some good luck in that department. But yeah, so we've been to Japan many times to do stuff, and uh, and I live there now. Actually, I live in right. Japan. Yeah. So all that happened, and um, the Velvet Crest, uh, also sort of encapsulated Velvet Crest, sort of stopped at one point, and we kind of restarted. Jeffrey left decided to not do it anymore for, at that point. Mm-hmm. And Rick and I continued on um, and we recorded Free Expression, which we went to Matthew's house in LA and recorded it there with Matthew. And I think maybe Greg Lee's plays on there. Because you know what you 
uh, is on that record too that was our side guy and then um we went forward with that and uh, what was after that uh, uh soft sounds soft sounds started out as a solo project that i was doing in rhode island when i lived there and on my adat machines <laughs> you know what machines are yep so I had a couple of eight machines, eight track. So I had 16 tracks of eight. Oh, wow. And I was planning on kind of doing a solo record. So I was recording stuff and uh, we needed to make another crush record. And we didn't really have songs. And I said, well, I got this stuff and I'll send you the stuff and you see what you think. And, and to Rick. And uh, he said, uh, well, I like a lot of that stuff and maybe we can come up with a couple of other ones and add to it and we could do a record and maybe Matthew would do it with us again. And which is exactly what we did. We didn't really do any live stuff because it was just Rick and I, and uh, you know, working with a, another guy producer. And then after that was uh, uh, Stereo Blues. Stereo Blues, yeah. Stereo Blues was we went back to we did it in Champaign, Illinois, with this guy Adam Schmidt, who's an old friend of ours, uh, who's an engineer, producer, songwriter, singer, all that kind of stuff. And um, we went kind of back to our roots, <laughs> and we recorded with Adam there. We had a few guest people who were people from bands that were in the area that I used to play with when I was in nines a couple other bands guys that were around that oh, in the scene. okay this guy Nick Rudd who was in a band called Turning Curious and this guy Bob Kimball who was in a band called Weird Summer and they did some session stuff with us a few songs and some of it was just me and uh, Rick had done a couple songs in LA that we brought back and I finished and it was just, a lot of it was that stuff and then there was I did some stuff just sort of me and Adam Rick came and did drums I think and then I he went away <laughs> he went back to LA and I stayed and worked on and finished out that record and that became Stereo Blues fairly underknown record of ours yeah. <laughs> and it was still we weren't playing live at that point so and that's uh, the that's the last recording that velvet crush did so i went forward from there but it took quite a bit of time but eventually i gathered some stuff some old recordings that i you know had gone through had made and i got gone through them and i started playing them for my friend john richardson who is from champagne mm -hmm. but lives up in wisconsin now <laughs> And um, I started playing it for him, and we, I don't know if we really decided to have a project or we just wanted to record some stuff. So we decided to record some songs, some of the things that I had made, and maybe a couple of new things that I'd made up. And okay. he didn't have a studio or anything, but he had a, he lives on a farm. So he had a farm building. So nice. we, we borrowed some stuff. <laughs> I bought my stuff, and all of it was like kind of half broken stuff, you know, <laughs> that's the kind of work. And I borrowed. <laughs> 
laptop from some friend of his and some other just stuff. Wow. And we got this guy, Brad Rice, who's a guitar player who's played with uh, lots of people like uh, Ryan Adams and um, Keith Urban, actually. Oh, wow. And um, a bunch of other people. It's a great guitar player. And he was a friend of John's from North Carolina when John lived down there. And so he, he, we asked him if he'd want to come up and do, do this thing with us, which I can't believe we did because we weren't together. We didn't have anything together. <laughs> it really, you know, like we thought we did, but we really didn't looking back on it. And he was very patient and just hung out with us and helped us do it. And we recorded a few songs and those became the kind of the seeds of the small square stuff. Of those things, I think only the song that's called Wild Chump is one of those songs. That's one that we did with Brad. Song. That was a newer one that I'd written, but that was like the first. It was so. That's a cool wow. song. Really, you like that? Song? I like. I, my favorite. I, I like it all right. It has a good sort of energy. But I remember, you know, we were in this like um, it was the, a granary building, which is, I guess where they used to store grain or something like that. Yeah. At John's farm, which belonged to her grandmother, his wife's grandmother, <laughs> and it was summer, and it was just so hot <laughs> in Wisconsin. I mean, it, it was over 100 degrees. It had to have been in this little room we were in. Whoa. It was like smoking hot. And we had uh, a snake and everything run Mike Snake out to this little like pop-up camper thing that was just outside the, the building. And that's where the sort of recording and stuff was. I don't know why we put it out there because it didn't really matter. But I guess so we could get like <laughs> So we'd, we'd play and then we'd run around and go around and check it. And it was just kind of dumb. But um, <laughs> it was fun, you know, I have good memories of it. But, but that was the beginning of the sort of doing something as as a unit and then so from that stuff i took a few other older songs like the song save my life was actually an old song that i'd started a demo of that's my favorite on that album one of my favorites and i kept almost all of the demo because i really liked something about it will you keep your name always next to on it unfortunately on the demo because it was a demo so i could play drums right, right. <laughs> so i did that and i played it for john i was like nah, i like this song and i actually really like what is going i, I sort of like my singing on it and i sort of like the vibe of it because it's a little home baked you know and i yeah. liked in a good way i thought and i like that little back porchy in a good way you know yeah exactly but I really sort of like the guitar sound on it and the stuff. And I thought I'd like to, I don't know if we can do it, but I'd love to keep this, but Oh my God, can we do something about the drums? <laughs> and you know, like, I don't know. And Cause I'm sure I didn't do it to a click track. You know, I just was playing it. I think I played the guitar part and then I went down to my basement and tried to play some drums just so there'd be a semblance of drums on it. Yeah. But it was not good, you know? And then, uh, so John, 
is the man for that because he can he has the ability to, to uh, play along with stuff somehow and do micro adjustments to compensate for instantly what he's hearing oh, wow. uh, and so he I don't think he did very many takes of it either but we set it up and he said you know what I'm going to play with mallets I'll play a drum kit but with mallets like uh, you know for vibraphone mallets or right, something like yeah. felt, felt mallets or maybe rubber I'm not sure I think they're felt but he um did the drum track and I thought that's cool I like that sound that's a very cool sound so the cymbal crabs are kind of like soft, soft. Like the ring and, um, yeah. uh, and the toms are a little bit padded sounding and it's pretty cool and I was astonished but he could just sort of do that and he went with my track and I I, I don't even think about it anymore you know I'm telling the story I'm, thinking, I'm remembering but like yeah. when I hear it, I'll go like oh yeah yeah it's a little weird here because of my drum thing but it's not weird <laughs> <laughs> because he nailed it somehow, you know, it's like, wow, okay, that's good. So that became a track. And so the re that first record bands a very long period of time because I was sort of inactive as far as playing or performing for quite a while, mm -hmm. but I was writing and I was actually learning to do recordings and stuff too. I was okay. learning to use tools and, and logic, which I had, I you know, figured that stuff out and, um, that's kind of what I was spending my time doing. And so, but when we started doing it, then I started, you know, to come up with new, newer songs. And so it has some more recent songs on it also, but it's a, it, it rep really represents to me like the arc from Velvet Crush to, to then, which was sort of like whenever it came out, originally it came out in 2015, I think, or 16. Yeah. yeah. And then we re-released it this year on John's label, uh, remastered and with some extra tracks, and which I was very glad to do because it, it really didn't get much distribution before. It, it, it actually came out in Japan on a small, small label. And then when we got the rights back to it, I put it out in the States, or I tried to, and it was like, you know, you couldn't, tell, you couldn't really tell that I put it out, right? So <laughs> I really wanted to release it. Now John got his label set up. I thought if we could really get this a little bit, you know, just so people can find it if they want to, yeah. you know? Yeah. And so, and also I thought, well, maybe that's a good ramp up because we have the new record ready to go. So I thought maybe if I time it closer, sort of close, it's sort of like a giant promo for leading into the new record. Plus I want to have it out available, you know? Yeah. So that was important to me. Got one question. Cause we kind of skipped over one important part here. Okay. When did you move to Japan and why did you move to Japan? Okay. okay. Fair enough. Well, I'm, I, uh, let's see. My wife's Japanese is the short answer to a lot of that, but um, okay. I met my wife in the States some years ago. And then later, um, I don't know what year that was, probably 2000 one or two or three or something like that. We, I came over to Japan with Matthew Sweet Band to play at Summer Sonic Festival, one of the big festivals this year. And I, I sort of kept in touch with my wife and she was a fan of Matthew's music. So she knew kind of what we were doing. And so she contacted me and said, I see that you guys are going to be playing. And, uh, and she had met Matthew too. And, yeah. and she said, if you, you know, if you guys want to, um, if you can stay another day or two or something, um, maybe I could arrange some stuff, touristy kind of things, you know, to okay. do because I could, I could take some time off and do it. I think, oh, cool. uh, you want, you know, like, so, it, which is great. So an expert, you know, a, a native. Yeah. You know? So we basically, we said, yeah, we'd like to try to do that. And Matthew's wife was actually with him too. So the three of us, and then there were a couple other sort of super fans from Tokyo that came to some of this stuff too. <laughs> these two uh, ladies. Um, but my future wife then showed us around some things in Kyoto 
and it was very cool. And then towards the end of that extra stay, we kind of started to get together. You know, like we're thinking, like, oh no! Of course, it was the end of the stay. Right. You know? Yeah. <laughs> it always happens that way. Annoying, right? And I'm yeah. like, oh. so we started kind of having a, a long, very long distance relationship from Osaka to uh, Bloomington, Illinois, where I was at that time. <laughs> wow. And then, uh, so eventually, you know, that developed, and we we got together we you know a few trips each of us back and forth more more her coming over here than me there but and then in uh so yeah so we started you know trying to do it and uh we got married then in 2007 and uh, we were we were sort of planning to kind of be in the states as much as we could but kind of based there and that sort of didn't work out that way really. So, and then we, my first daughter was born in 2009. So at that point it was like, well, we'll have more, you know, an easier time. We'll have help and stuff if we are in Japan and my wife could work easier there too. Okay. Uh, you know, everything was sort of laid out there and her parents, um, she's younger than me. So her parents are younger and, and they helped a lot with kids and things like that. It just seemed like it made so much more sense. So we, we just moved there and, and we come back every year if we can to here. Like I am right now, I'm back yeah, over, but yeah. I can't always do it now. It gets a little more complicated, but, but generally Matthew was, you know, pretty much touring every summer. So I would come over and, and at least do that. And oh, cool. Maybe, and then I started doing small square stuff. And so I also go to John's and we would track some stuff because we have limited time when we can actually be in the same uh, you know building. Right. So, so that would be my summers, you know, the family would be over and then I'd do a tour and then I'd go up to John's for maybe a week or something and we'd make some motions towards new songs, you know, new recordings. And so we'd start recordings and I'd bring them back to Japan and I would try and finish up as much as I could and, okay. and make to do the next time. And I'd send him stuff maybe to play on to from, you know, it's a little difficult. Um, we'd like to do more stuff in person, but that's not what, that's not where we're at. Right. <laughs> So we do whatever we do it all the different ways we can do it, I guess, is the answer. So that's that's what happened there. So the writing for Small Square, is that is it done together while you guys are, are, are together for the most part? Or are you bringing in ideas and John bringing Not in ideas? Part, but it is like it's really done all of the ways that you could sort of all the all the different permutations. Really, it's like okay. I do the bulk of the writing, I would say, but. A lot of times I'll bring a song. Here's the, I think this is maybe the main way it works is I have a song idea or a, even a demo or a partial song demo or, or something, one of those things. Maybe some, sometimes even a full-blown kind of demo that's got a lot of stuff figured out on it. But most of the time it's not really finished, and I, and I uh, go to John's studio, which now is a real studio in that same building. He's t- turned it into an actual recording studio. <laughs> another amazing, you know, thing that we have at our disposal. So, um, I bring him in and we listen to him and, you know, we pick something to work on. So whatever it needs, like if this isn't a whole, a complete song, then we try to make it a complete song. And if it is a complete song, he'll say, okay, I want to track drums on it. You know, and the drums are already set up and stuff. So it's like, okay. So he tracks drums on that song to my sort of demo and probably I redo some of the stuff or sometimes I don't. And but then sometimes we'll sit there and, or he'll have an idea. Like, this is a great example. The first song in the record, on the new record, it's called 23rd. Yes. Piano song. So that is 
the core idea was John's idea. In fact, he's playing the piano in that the little riff. That was his. That was his idea. That was basically sort of it. Right. And that's what the song basically is. Is that? So he did that, and then I said, "Yeah, it's cool. I like it." And I can. I don't have a melody idea right now, but I can. I can have one. I know. I can. I know. I can come up with something for this. It's cool. But it needs another part. It needs like a bridge thing, and then we need to arrange the form of it. You know. Mm-hmm. And he's like, "Well, yeah, okay, sure." And so I sat down and I tried to work out something, and so I made up a bridge for it. And so I said, "Okay." Well, we should, you know, we should track this now on the piano because he had at that time he had like a little grand piano in his studio. And um, usually we have an engineer there when we're there at his studio helping us out. But I think I think it was just the two of us uh, doing this one. And um, we figured out we worked. I said, well, you got to play your part because I don't know what your part is, and you, and I want it to sound like that, like how you do it. I could play it. I could do what you do probably, but it's not going to be the same. So I, I like the way it sounds. So can you yeah. play it? He's like, well, I, <laughs> he was a little hesitant <laughs> to do it. And I said, yeah, you got to do it. You got to do it. So he said, well, I can't play the bridge part. I don't know what those chords are. I don't know what you're playing. I don't know how to play piano. And I said, okay, well, you, you play the part you play, and then I, and I'll play my part. And so we worked out the form of the song, you know, how what, what goes where. Yeah. And it so happens that the song, the way we arranged it was there were stop parts. Like it comes to those big, the ends of the, you know, the cadence there. It's like, um, yeah, yeah. Right. So there's one right before the bridge or after the bridge too, I think. And uh, so actually we rolled the tape. It wasn't actually tape. <laughs> we started the recording. He plays. When it gets to that part, he was just like holding the note on the piano and he would get up off the bench and I would sit down on the piano bench and I started playing the bridge. Oh, wow. So I played the bridge and I got the end of the bridge and I hold the note down <laughs> and move over and he gets there to play out the last verse and the end of the song. Oh, wow. And we did it one thing together. It wasn't punched together. It was just like we we performed it. I don't know why we decided to do it. It's kind of stupid. <laughs> it's but awesome. It, but it was funny and fun, you know, at the time. And, and then we didn't piano. Have so it was just rolling and we were like, you know, and I think we just did it. So long, Peter Pan. I never doubted you. Faded out. Faded out. So that became that just kind of sat there for a while while I kind of figured out what a, what to do with it. Yeah. But that is one of my favorite things on the record, actually. And I like, I don't know. I just I think I like the collaborative thing of that because it's not a chord progression thing that that I probably would have done. Or you know what I mean? It's mm-hmm. not. I could have thought of it, but it's, it doesn't seem like a thing I would have thought of. And and it was what he thought of, and I liked that. And I so I wrote melody and. Um, we tracked some stuff on it. I think we tracked it maybe in co- over two couple different sessions. I had some guitars at home, and then we had um, we had it all kind of done. And I mixed it, and I was like, ah, I don't know, there's something is missing. Something it's missing an element, and that's, it's really cool, but it needs a thing in it to be really cool. And so then, in the meantime, I'd been doing shows with Matthew, and um, we had been playing with this guy, lead guitar player named John Mormon who lives in San Francisco. Uh, he, he played with a band called Orange Peels. And um, anyway, 
he was playing lead with Matthew and he's a really nice guy and uh, we got along really well. So I said, I wonder, I'm going to ask John if he would play on this song. Oh, he's, cool. you know, I'm going to ask him and if he says yes, I'll send it to him and see what he does. <laughs> and, and I said, Hey John, would you, I get this song. Would you think you could do it? And he said, yeah, man, I'll try it. I'll get it. I mean, I don't know if you'll like what I do, but I said, just do it. And I said, what I'd like it to do be is like one guitar, like it needs a lead, but it sort of needs a second guitar. And if, and if it could be kind of like the, the same guitar, you know what I mean? Like yeah. not, here comes the lead guitar coming in heats and which he did. So he performs, he plays rhythm. And then when it comes time for the lead, he starts playing the lead. Oh, that, wow. That was what I, I don't know why, but I thought that was a cool concept. And he did that. But the second I got it back from him and I popped it into my session, I was like, Oh man, that, you know, it was right. It was the right thing. And I never would have thought of what he did at all. I couldn't, you oh. know, that, that wasn't what I, I could have done something in those places, but I don't play like that. And uh, what he did was it gave it some thing and I don't know what it was, but it was a thing that was required, you know? Yeah. That Somehow is, the song found the parts that it needed. <laughs> Somehow, that is you know, so awesome. Like that. So I love those kind of things. And, and I really like the way that the song turned out. And it was about, actually, I mentioned earlier, Velvet Crush guitar player Pete Phillips. It was kind of about him because he, he had passed away a few years prior to that from uh, alcohol, you know, related. And it was just very sad and tragic because it was a very tough musician and a good friend of mine and, uh, and our band, uh, my other band. And so that song's kind of about, and it's kind of a bummer to start the record with that, but uh, yeah. <laughs> it's about loss really. It's about like, God damn it. You know, like why, you know, why are these, why, why do people do this and, or this happens to them or whatever yeah. and, and what are we supposed to do? And here we are, and, you know, it's sort of like saying like, we're suffering for it kind of, you know, I was, but I was kind of angry. I was a little bit, I think I was kind of angry with Pete for, for doing that to himself. And he was, you know, ill, obviously, yeah. so I wasn't, but I had these feelings about it like that, like, you know, like, oh, man, come on. No, I, I understand that. And, and one of my favorite songs in the album is about, a, you know, not, not to focus on, on this, but can't let go. With, you know, for Tommy Keene. So it's right. I was thinking, wake me up when this is over. From a whisper to a dream that seems a long, long time ago. I saw me. through line through the album I, it seems to be and i think that had, is maybe just sort of a product of like my age because when you get to a certain age of uh, people start dying around you you yeah. know although these people that we're talking about diet it was you know much too young that it shouldn't have been happening but uh, that song actually existed in some form before those words were attached to it and i and i I didn't really even want to do that song. I had I had made a demo. That song was a demo that I made for my the Japanese uh, publisher Sony Music. She would sometimes uh, email me and say, "Hey, these, this band uh, is looking for a song. They're having come an open call for the songs, and if you want to send a song." So I sent a song, and it's actually for a band that was quite famous several years ago, and, and kind of keeps going. But they're they're not as active as they were, but they kind of had a sound. But I thought, oh, I came up with this song and I just sent it in and they didn't use it. And I didn't, I didn't really 
think of it as a song for me. You know, it didn't seem like my song. Yeah. <laughs> but John was always like, what about that song? Why don't we do that song? I'm like, eh, I just, I, I, I like the song, but I needed to figure out a different way to, to do it and think about it. Because when I think of the demo, I can't, it's not my song. You know, it doesn't seem like I didn't write it for me. I don't have a way. And so finally, we, he convinced me to record. So we decided to record it with this friend of ours named uh, Walt Vincent, who happened to be in town at John's studio. And Walt's a multi-instrumentalist and uh, you know songwriter, producer, engineer guy. He's worked with like, Pete Yorn and uh, Liz Fair. Oh, wow. Worked with Tommy some, too. And uh, so he's a very talented guy. And he came in, and we kind of worked out the thing with him, the arrangement. And he played bass on it. I played guitar and John played drums and we tracked it like that. And that became the basis of the song. And so then I kind of felt like I had more, I don't know, impetus to do something with it. And so then, um, I don't know when I finished it. I finished it before Tommy passed away, I think, but I, it's kind of like I wrote and didn't know what really what was, uh, it was about exactly, but it was, it was about that sort of thing. And so then I was able to complete it once Tommy had passed away. And, um, yeah, you know, it was sort of like about somebody crossing over and and going, as you know, you can tell from the lyrics, but, but I decided to actually name it that. So people would actually know that it was, had Tommy involved (laughs) because because I wouldn't have been able to finish the song without the inspiration from him and, the. And then losing him too. He was a friend. He, so Tommy's string goes through. He he was a member of Velvet Crush for. He played. He did touring with us. He played like a hundred and some shows with us for uh, Teenage Symphonies touring. Oh wow! Uh, John Richardson has played in Tommy's band for ages. Has been his bass player. I mean, his, his drummer and his bass player Brad actually lives near me in Japan. Oh wow! At Brad Quinn, who played with Tommy and John for a long, long time. And so the loss of Tommy really hit on several levels, you know, with uh, the bands I was in, you know, and and then Tommy in recent years had been opening solo shows, solo performance for a Matthew Sweet band. And so he had been quite close uh, during that time. Again, kind of rekindled because we we played with them and spent a lot of time with them. But, you know, I hadn't seen him that much since then. But then he started doing uh, these opening shows, opening slots for this for the show. We bring him with us, you know. We'd all travel together and do these shows. It'd be Tommy opening, and and uh, which was really fun and cool because Tommy's great and uh, great in a lot of different ways. And so that was uh, it was a huge loss. And um, I, I'm actually glad that I was able to um, reflect it in a song that I had going. But but the song, but it wasn't started, you know, because of that incident. I just had the song, like the chords, and like, well, I don't know. I didn't even really have the melody. Just kind of had the chords, and John really liked it. He said, "There's something about it I like." and so uh, it became that, and now I like the song more because of that, the connection I have with it, with Tommy and all that. So, One of the other tracks that I really love, because just because of the, the kind of delicate sound of it, is Days In. Softer. Uh, that is another uh, very different kind of thing for us. That was John's 
idea, the, the music for it, and what what is the story? Uh, John had somebody came to the studio or something and had like a some kind of a, a cigar box guitar thing. Oh, cool! Yeah, kind of an open tuned, you know. Uh, instrument, so you you know, you know what I mean. Like it plays a chord, like when you strum it. So kind of like yeah. a dulcimer, thing, similar maybe. I didn't see it. I wasn't at that thing. And he uh, he messed around with it. He was able to play it, and he made up this little pattern. But he couldn't keep. He didn't have the instrument, and he and John didn't really know what the tuning of it was or anything like that. I had no idea. But <laughs> I came there one time. He said, "I have this idea, but I don't know how to figure it out." And and I didn't know anything about that instrument at all. Uh, so I couldn't really help him do it because he was really hearing those notes and what it was. And so he works with this guy named Corey Wong, who's a guitar guru, you know, guitar player. And Corey had done a lot of sessions at the studio. So he had Corey plays with a uh, Wolf Wolfpeck. Uh, oh, okay. Thanks now. And he's a star in his own right, I think. So he's, he's, you know, really good. And, he, and he's a session guy. And he's really good at figuring out stuff and really knows his thing. So he worked with John and figured out something that was close to the thing that John had made up and heard in his head. Wow. And they, they, they make, they recorded some parts like the sections and they, then it was sort of left as, as that when it sounded cool, it was just a guitar, like acoustics. And they sent it to me and, and I said, well, I can, I can do something with this eventually. Yeah. <laughs> I am around it, you know? And I said, I, I might have to chop it up and stuff to do stuff. You know, is that okay? You know? Cause so I, I, I chopped it a bit, the form, song form because yeah. I, I had, I got an idea at some point. I was like, okay, well I, I need to make a bridge thing out of this. I need to do this. So I used all the stuff that Corey did rearranged it. I added uh, a bass and John didn't. Oh yeah. John added some drums to it. It was on there already. There was like two different takes of drums that I had going. So um, I had a bass and I had, I think I had some kind of keyboard instrument for the vibe, like a stringy weird synthesizer thing or something. Oh, okay. And I made up a little, you know, the little melody kind of about just being worn out being on the road and being worn out kind of and, yeah. you know, while life passes you by sort of yeah. <laughs> while everything else is, you know, um, but so it was really John's kind of core idea, although there wasn't a melodic idea. So I, I, I did that part of it. And then, yeah, that's an interesting song. It's probably, it's very different from anything else on the record, I think, but the, I like that. I like that there can be stuff like that on the same record. I like records that are like that where there's a, a turn here and you're like, Oh, this is, and I, you know, I can't even play that song. I don't even know how to do what Corey did. I can, and I can try to learn it sometime, but I don't even know if I can play it. Because oh, wow. Corey's a really good guitar player. Yeah. <laughs> He's very good. Player, so I'm like, well, I don't know. Maybe I can do something like that. We've never tried to play it. So we've never actually played that live or even together in the same room, you know. Oh, my gosh. Some songs are like that. Some songs are like that. I also like Babyface. And what I think is... Really interesting is the very end. What is what's playing at the very okay, end? Well, that's I'm glad you noticed that. But that was a weird thing, which I wasn't actually there for. So that's one of Tommy's songs, Tommy Keen's songs. Oh wow! Okay, but I always liked, and the, the story of that is while he was with us on Matthew Sweet tours. Um, I, I kept saying, cause I liked that song and I kept saying, Tommy, you gotta do baby face. Yeah, can you do it? He's like, I can't, I, mean, it's, I, I can't, it's too high to do like as, as an acoustic song. If I had a rock band, you know, and I was singing louder, maybe I could do it. But 
that's, that's an, it's a pretty old song of his. And okay. I kept, and I kept saying it like every couple of days. I'd just say, baby face, Tommy, baby face, baby face. Think about it, think about it. And uh, he just, you know, it was a joke. He wouldn't do it. I knew he wouldn't do it. So I still had that song in my mind. And then um, I, I don't remember when I started. I think it might have been after he died. And I decided to do a version of it on keyboards, do a keyboard version of it. Instead of, he just, he had a rock, a rock band kind of version of it, which is good. Probably better. It is better. <laughs> uh, but I had this idea for doing it. And so I sent the stuff, some very uh, basic sort of track stuff to John. And he had a couple of guys that were working with him at the time in his studio. This guy, Adam Beard, who is a bass player. And this guy, Adam Ollendorf, who plays uh, stringed instruments like steel and acoustic and stuff. And they happened to be at the studio working on some other session of his. And he said, well, I, I probably can have Adam and Adam do it with me. It's like, okay, that, that sounds good. And so they played some stuff and sent it back to me. And it wasn't really what I was trying to get from them. Okay. <laughs> it's not what I described, uh, <laughs> you know, at all, really. But that's okay, you know. So, so I said, mm, okay, well, let's see what I can work out with this. But I really... Uh, since he had died, I, I, I really wanted to get it on the record. But while they were doing the session, so John's, John has a big live room in his studio. I think they were all in the live room with the drums sitting there and then the amps were maybe, you know, somewhere else. But somebody's, uh, so there was like a, I guess there was a live mic, a talkback mic or something. Okay. And somebody, one of the Adams phones was sitting on like a chair or stool or something, the way I understand it in the studio. Okay. And they got done with the take of the song and the cymbals kind of ringing out and they hear this music playing on the phone and somebody's like Spotify or something started, was playing or Apple music. I don't know what it was with some, you know, some streaming. streaming service. Yeah. And it was playing one of Tommy's songs. Wow. Compromise. And that's what is on the recording. Cause it was on the recording. It was on there. And I just tried to make it so you could hear it a little bit, but it's like, so it's, I don't know how it got triggered or what happened because it, the way I understand it, the phone was not on the person. It was laid off somewhere and it was sitting there so I could hear the, what was happening in the room or something, yeah. but I don't know. And maybe somebody said Tommy or I don't even know what, I, I don't know what happened, but they were like freaked out. Adam <laughs> 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 Ollendorf, the guy on the session actually had done one of the later Tommy King tours. So he knew Tommy also. And uh, it was very, they were like freaked. They're like, what is that? And then John's like, that's Tommy's song. That's one of his songs. And, I'm, and, wow. and he called me and said, this just happened. And it was like the weirdest. And it was so like, they were just completely freaked out. Oh and my I said, gosh. I and so when I'm mixing, I'm like, I got to get that on there. And no one will know what it is or understand it, but I got to have it on there for me because that's the weirdest story, you know? And, uh, oh and so it was sort of like Tommy saying, okay, thank you. Know, uh, you know, I'm, I'm here uh, in spirit or something, you know? Wow. And that was the weirdest thing. I'd, I'd forgotten actually about that story until you said that, but um, oh, I remember wow. trying that I got to get that. I got to like the symbols ring out stuff and I got to bring it up somehow at the end so you can hear. And I can tell it's the song, but I, maybe nobody else can. But anyway, it's a song called Compromise. If you listen to that song and then go listen to the, our, our thing, you, you'll be able to hear it. But it just started spontaneously playing and it was a weird, I, I don't have an explanation for it. It works perfectly. It sounds amazing. It sounds like it's supposed to be there. Yeah, it's pretty cool, and and it's the guy whose song we were. It's just like uh, I don't know. It's incredible. Uh, I couldn't. I could not have it anyway. I was glad that that had a cool story to it because I really wanted to. Uh, after t t you know, after being sort of a joke with Tommy for so long, I thought, well, I really want to do this 
on, you know, and it's sad kind of. And then I, I sent it to Tommy's brother and I said, I, I did this song and I, I'd like to put it on a record, but I want to know what you think, thought, thought of it and make sure it's okay with you. And, and he said, he said, you know, I, I love that song. And it was the first song. He said, it's a song that uh, my wife and I did our first dance to when we were married. Oh, wow. Oh my gosh. Oh. So Bobby liked it and I said, okay, cool. Then we're, then we're good to go. Yeah. So, oh, yeah. that's beautiful. But Tommy kind of does run through the record, I guess, in some, in a couple of different ways. That's amazing. That is amazing. And it's, it's an, an amazing album. I've been listening to it for days now and I'm really enjoying it. I think it's, Oh, thank you so much. I, I, I love it. Where is the best? You know, we've been trying to get it out for so long. Uh, for yeah. the, the pandemic thing happened and we had a couple of close calls trying to get it out and it didn't happen. And then finally, John, for other reasons, really decided to start a, a label branch of his like studio because he has artists that he kind of works with. Mm -hmm not really managing, but almost kind of, you know, like working with them in, in that capacity. So yeah. there's an outlet for them to be able to release stuff too. So I thought, well, okay, that's how we're going to have to do it because I don't have, I don't have anybody lined up outside the door right. <laughs> <laughs> to put it out, but I really wanted to put it out because I felt like there's some, some pretty good work on it. And, uh, I'm, I'm pleased that it came out, but thank you for saying that. I appreciate it. What's the best way for people to find the album and, and give it a listen? buy it it's going to be everywhere all, all platforms all streaming platforms we have we have really good distribution it'll be around i think it'll be available on a cd from uh the label website probably at first farm to label records it's called so you can find that when it comes out there's gonna be a single out on the 17th and a video at that same time which will be the first song in the record 23rd i made the video my second attempt at making a, a video. Oh, awesome. <laughs> a little bit homespun. <laughs> I love <laughs> those. But I, you know, that's kind of my thing. John's not so homespun. He likes things a little more tidy, but I, I like to, <laughs> I'm more of a DIYer. I'm a dyed in the wool. And I, I'm in the, the home of the ultimate rock DIY band shoes right now. This, oh. These guys recorded their first record and some of their other records completely by themselves. And they were sort of my inspirations. Oh, so I, I'll tell you about that. Yeah. I, in Jeff's house, Jeff's band shoes played on the song Closer, Open Up Closer, it's called. Great song. On the record. song we tracked at John's studio with some other musicians and, and ourselves and you know I wasn't thrilled with it. I didn't I didn't think it found it sort of I didn't I wasn't I wasn't in love with what happened there but I liked what because we finished the song the, the musicians helped us finish the song because it was just I wrote it as just like a little intro piece and so we made it into a, a song in that session but the treatment of it I thought it just was lacking some didn't I didn't quite have the feeling of it or something I didn't know what to do with it and then okay. uh, and one of us thought of, like, boy, I wish we could get shoes to, to do something on this record. And, and next thing I know, John's on his phone. And uh, <laughs> so I'm in Kenosha. John lives in uh, Menominee, kind of on the west side of the state. And these guys are on the, the east side of the state near Chicago. 
And so he calls up Gary, one of the other guys in the band, and Gary has a home studio. I'm in Jeff's studio right now, but uh, and he said, Gary, we have this song, and Paul and I, and we want you guys to to sing on it, sing and play on it, do whatever, whatever we can do. Now, what do you think? And could you do it? And you know, like today or tomorrow or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> Mm, I don't know. Um, yeah, why well, do? Let me call the guys. And so it wow. happened. And uh, we just came over to Gary's and played him the song. They started doing their thing with the vocals, and uh, they have a real sound to their their recordings and their their voices sound together a certain way, which is really cool. And so they sang and they made up their own parts, and we just sat and watched. Kind of, you know, they recorded themselves. And then after, and that turned out great, and I loved it. And then after that, I said, well, I need some lead guitar. And uh, Gary said, well, I'll, I'll, I'll give that a try if, if you want. I was like, sure. So that was a little bit later, he emailed me the lead guitar part and song, which I super loved. Wow. <laughs> so it really made the song. I said, this is what the song wanted to do. This is where we wanted to go with it. I mean, this is, I didn't know. I didn't even know where, you know, I just had this idea for a song. Yeah. But sort of, found, again, it found somehow you know through our network of people it found the the thing that i think completes it and i I really like what happened on it you know yeah but i hadn't seen these guys since that time so i decided and i've been actually working with jeff we've been writing some songs together lately so long distance so i decided to stop by in my travels here and uh see jeff and the guys are out there now we're gonna have dinner in a little bit and uh oh i will i won't keep you too much longer i promise okay there's no problem they know i'm working in here (laughs) so with you in japan is it uh a possibility for a small square to to tour it is we don't have anything on the books just now i and i you know i don't I wish we did, but we don't have anything going on now. But um, yeah, I, I mean, I would come over for a tour. We we did our only tour we ever did in Japan, actually, for the first record. We toured over there. Oh, cool! With Tommy playing and Brad, his bass player, playing in the band. Oh, so wow. it, was, it was like Tommy King band plus me, basically. But <laughs> <what> it was doing <laughs> <laughs> our songs, you know. So that was pretty fun. But it was very small. Um, we played really small places, and you know, one of them was almost like a house show, practically. But um, but we played it in Tokyo and in a bigger place too, and uh, so it was cool. But it was only it was only a handful of shows. I'd like to do that, but you know, the pandemic had a real adverse effect on some of the smaller promoters, and th- like they, they went by the wayside. The people we used, and so that leaves just sort of just with the sort of really big promoters. And I don't exactly have an in yet to some of those, and uh, so I'm kind of looking for a way to do. Because we did a Velvet Crush tour over here. Oh, cool. With the promoter who are gone now. Oh, God. But they would have been, you know, who, who I would have called to do it. But yeah, so we're working on stuff like that. And it's definitely a possibility. I, I come over when I when I can, when I need to. And, you know, I would definitely do that. But we don't have anything on the books just now. But we can we can keep uh, keep an eye on that. So what yes. is what is the best way for for listeners to keep an eye on Small Square and, and and anything else, any other projects that you're working on? Is there social media links, a website? Yeah, sure. If there's all that stuff, you know, there's uh, Facebook and uh, Instagram are our main things, and there is a website also. It's not completely up to date, but it's close. It's my responsibility, so I'll, I work on that. <laughs> <laughs> And yeah, basically that. And then the, you know, the, the label website, there's stuff on there a little bit. That's basically it. We're pretty, we're pretty basic. We're not too overboard with the social stuff. We do just enough maybe to, (laughs) we need to do more, I guess. But, uh, yeah. And today's environment. Yeah. Unfortunately, is it, is the account on, is, is it at small square or is it something different? Uh, the website is, um, small square music. 
com. Okay, and then social media links would be on there, and I'm sure. YouTube and uh, yeah, everything everything's there. There's okay. a YouTube page and there's a uh, Instagram and a Facebook. Okay, awesome. Well, yep. I will let you go and have your dinner with. Well, thank you so much, Mark. It's been a pleasure um, chatting with you. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.